Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation. In this episode, we bring back one of our favorite guests, Bill Tung, Managing Director at Peaks Consulting. As we start to branch out and discuss the broader APAC landscape, we asked Bill about his background of helping Rockport and the body shop grow across the APAC region in the 1990s and early 2000s, and diving into his expertise on marketing outdoor apparel and equipment to the Asia-Pacific consumers. We also cover topics like the common mistakes brands make doing this, optimizing your organizational structure to thrive in foreign markets, and how to prepare for complaints and returns operating in an overseas market. Enjoy. Listen, nobody wants to have multiple styles and SKUs. You know, if you can just sell one product around the world, it makes life incredibly easier and efficient. And I suppose if you're selling, you know, frozen peas or soybeans, you can do so. Not that I'm an expert in agriculture, but when you're selling apparel and footwear or personal care products, yeah, it, it's it cultures, uh, histories, uh, and, and consumers are very different around the world. And I think that when you ignore that or, or don't want to address that, uh, then that's when you run into problems. Home to over 4 billion people, the Asia-Pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet. Not only is it home to half of the world's under 30 population, but it's also home to more than half the world's internet users. It's a market that no globally minded organization should ignore. But entering markets like China, Japan, or Southeast Asia is no easy task. Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber, and Facebook. However, times are changing, and with the right partners, doors are slowly opening as more and more companies find success growing their key markets in APAC. I myself spent eight years in China, mostly as a venture capitalist, helping early-stage tech companies grow in the Asia-Pacific market successfully. This show is dedicated to uncovering and examining successful Asia market entry and growth strategies by interviewing the experts who've done it before and truly understand what it takes to be successful in the region. My name is Todd Embley, and welcome to The Negotiation. Brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technologies. Bill, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Todd. It's been a while and uh, always welcome. Uh, look forward to uh, speaking with you. Thanks. Yeah, that's right. You know, we, we we had you on before and our audience has grown a ton. And, you know, since we did the audio original, you know, we were just doing all the audio for the podcast and now we're back. We're doing video. We've got the YouTube channel for those who want to go check us out. If you're only listening on audio, of course, WPIC at uh, the YouTube channel. That's where our live video recording is going to be living now. And it was February of 2021. Wow. So you and I were discussing, well, how long has it been? Has it been a year? Actually, it's been more. It's been longer. I think COVID did that to all of us. All time just stretched and became elongated without us really knowing it. So uh, we're going to assume, based on that timeline, that um, most of the audience listening or watching this interview potentially hasn't come across that original episode. So A... I'll advise everybody here today, if you're really, really interested in knowing more and, under, you know, want to get that first iteration of our discussion, go back and hunt down. I'm going to be doing this a lot. I'm going to be sending a lot of people back to the podcast and go hunt down some of these, uh, some of these amazing interviews that we did before, like the one we did with you in February of 2021. But for those who don't know you and haven't heard you before, let's first start with a bit of your background. Let's give mm, a little, you know, 10-year synopsis of what you've been doing and the work you've been doing helping brands succeed in APAC recently. 
Yeah, I, I think, you know, if I went back 10 years, Todd, was mostly my time at Columbia Sportswear as the vice president of international and uh, really, really doing business uh, responsible for the markets all uh, encompassing outside of the United States. So covering uh, Europe, Middle East, Africa, Asia Pacific, and Latin America and Canada uh, as well. Uh, and then, then I, I moved on to New Balance uh, here in Boston. Uh, that did a very much similar role uh, doing that. Uh, that was for a brief stint. And then at a company called Fanatics uh, that has the license for the NBA, NFL, MLB, uh, NHL, uh, and other uh, sports assets and starting up uh, their international division. Uh, but right now I'm focusing my time on consulting with uh, brands, companies in the apparel and footwear space, uh, more on the smaller, medium size, uh, and just helping them with their international expansion strategy. Uh, should they be setting up subsidiaries, distributors, agents, franchisees, and uh, how, how should they go about doing that? How should they structure their internal organization to optimize and to think globally with that mindset? Uh, so setting up that strategy and then helping them execute that strategy in, in select markets around the world where they need help. Yeah. Well, and it's such an interesting space. You know, I come from it and a lot of listeners um, previously would know a little bit about mm. my background working with startups. I come from kind of VC startup land, that kind of thing, uh, working a lot with entrepreneurs and the, uh, you know, things, you know, it's the explosion, even in just independent indie footwear or apparel, you know, I mean, what you're doing now and the amount of of small to medium businesses that that are now growing Correct. that are looking Correct. you know it's not just the big nike's and adidas anymore so many of these amazing small brands that are coming out and things like shopify and things have really kind of like just allowed stripes and things right the explosion of the you know the the creator and the artist and the ability to actually build and grow a brand and doing these things so all that work super fascinating space that you were in and then how you've been able to just really go independent to cover so many so many needs for so many new um people in the space and we're going to get to that however i uh you know and i asked you for a background that was 10 years and here I actually want to talk a little bit about, you know, things that were even 20 years ago. Okay. You know, I want to go back to Rockport, right? You were brought in yeah. to help Rockport grow in APAC. And so I want to dive into that work that you were doing in Tokyo for a couple of years. It, you know, what was it like your first your first efforts in understanding and trying to market to consumers in, in Japan? Yeah, a good question, Todd. You know, the, the footwear industry, especially the brown shoe or, uh, or the dress shoe industry, which Rockport uh, plays in, is a fairly conservative uh, industry. And, and certainly in Japan, a very conservative industry as well. So certainly taking an American brand uh, based here in Boston uh, and trying to implement its products and its marketing into Japan uh, certainly had its great challenges. And certainly from a product standpoint, point. Uh, there wasn't really an issue with the product with the styling uh, standpoint, but the Japanese consumer have different feet, Todd, lo and behold. Um, so 
you know, so it's about the last, which, which you know, shoe dogs and footwear manufacturers call the last. And certainly uh, the Japanese foot uh, tends to be a bit wider fit. Uh, the ball of the foot tends to be higher. And that's pretty typical in Asia itself. So accommodations had to be made of what type of styles would we be selling in Japan and, and, the, and, and the last and, and the size and width of those products. Um, but also, you know, Japan, people take their shoes off restaurants, homes. So slip on loafers became very, very popular or, or very, uh, you know, was more the norm than traditional Thai uh, laced up shoes. Not that that doesn't exist, but the loafer is just much more, uh, just a bigger percentage of the total sale. So you need to be aware of those and make those shifts. I had no idea. I had no idea. No, um, not. Yeah. All feet are not created equal. Is it lessons learned by, with Bill Tung? That's amazing. Um, but I mean, it makes sense. I don't. I guess I probably just never thought about it before. But yeah, you're absolutely right. The the entire uh, makeup of the product would probably have to change. Okay, so specifically, then let's talk about some of the lessons um, from that experience. You know, some some of the lessons that that are timeless. The things that you've learned, you're still applying to what you know how you operate and consult today. Uh, number one, know thy consumer. And I think for a lot of American companies, uh, Canadian companies as well, and but I think this is ubiquitous, quite frankly, somewhat uni- universal, Todd, in the fact that, you know, you have your home country bias. And you know, th- these are our top selling styles in our home country. So, you know, for sure, they would be our top selling styles in Paris and in Tokyo as well. Well, why not? They're our best selling styles in our home market. And, you know, this is a marketing campaign that was so successful here in our home market. We'll just translate that uh, verbatim sometimes and we'll just uh, do the same thing in France as we do in Japan. And I think that's where a lot of companies just fall into these traps of, um, you know, it's a bit of naivete. Uh, to be a bit unkind. It's a bit of ignorance or hubris just to thinking, well, you know, this is what we made, made us successful here. Surely it should make us successful in these other countries as well. So it, it, it's when you fail to understand the consumers that you're trying to sell to. And that gets a lot of companies into trouble, I think. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. So let's let's move past that. Let's go into body shop. Okay, so, we, so, we, so out of Rockport, now you move into the body shop, totally different vertical. Now, I'm imagining that you still have a lot of products that are focused on foot. And you moved uh, as well. You weren't in Japan. You, you moved over to Hong Kong, right? And you were responsible for several markets inside Greater China as well as Japan and Korea, okay? And as many people listening to the podcast probably know, consumers in Hong Kong uh, and consumers in Japan are very, very different, right? We have a very savvy audience. We probably understand, at least by now, and hopefully this podcast has helped them understand that consumers, you know, in Japan, in Korea, in Hong Kong, Greater China, they are all very, very different, okay? So did you find it, were there any difficulties in what you were trying to do in running that market from outside being not in Japan, not in Korea, based in Hong Kong? What kind of difficulties were you facing due to physical location? Yeah, well, uh, I traveled to Tokyo quite a bit, Todd. Uh, and the interesting uh, body shop at that time was an English company. Uh, and I think it's now owned by uh, L'Oreal or somebody. But, uh, you know, so selling in Japan, uh, hundreds of stores in Japan. So a, a very successful business uh, operated with an exclusive franchisee there. 
Without exception, almost every product from shampoo to vitamin C to mango body butters were modified for the Japanese market. Uh, personal care, by definition, very personal. Um, the reason for that, yeah, I mean, we had, we had a partner in, in Tokyo that just really believed that the products that were coming out of the UK were not made or maybe not appropriate for the Japanese consumer. And, and this goes into, Todd, what some people will call the myth of Japanese uniqueness. And I would say ignore that at your peril. Um, so, you know, almost without... Almost without exception, every product was before it was launched in Japan was tested and modified the formulation, whether it was scent or astringency, pH value, acidity value. I could go on and on. So, so the partner in in Japan was very sophisticated. Uh, they really knew the consumer, but it really put a lot of stress on the R&D process back in the UK and certainly the manufacturing process uh, back in the UK. So, yeah, and it, it was very revealing uh, just, just throughout that process. With, I, I recall very much uh, launching a new shampoo in, in Tokyo. And uh, even without testing the product on Japanese consumers, the feedback was, well, you, you need to modify that product because, you know, it's going to be too astringent for the Japanese consumers because, you know, the J Japanese consumers are shampooing their hair every day. Uh, so it's going to be too strong for their hair. So, you know, they just didn't. Yeah. So it was very interesting that uh, we had to make some pro product modifications uh, from shampoo to vitamin C to mango body butters. It was just went on and on and on. I, I can only imagine. And, and I, I mean, I, I just want to revisit what you said, you know, ignoring the personality differences or at least, you know, the consumer personal differences uh, at your peril. Um, um, I couldn't uh, I couldn't agree more. And I think it's really, really smart. It, it bears repeating uh, repeatedly, uh, constantly, uh, because it is so, so important. Now, let's let's talk a little bit about. The gender specifics of, you know, a lot of what you're doing. How do you, as somebody who consults and, and works with brands, how do you deal with something? And like if we were to say that Body Shop, and you can agree or disagree. First of all, was Body Shop targeting female audiences? Mostly, if not exclusively. Uh, uh, emphatically, yes. Okay. So... How does, I mean, I know that data is data. It is, it is binary, right? It is, it is, it is, it is neither, you know, uh, male or female, right? It is, it is non-binary. It is, it is so, so, so now when you are working in that industry and you are helping brands target a specific audience that isn't you, how you know and and i think that just leads into how do you work like like how do you market um hockey apparel if you don't play hockey how do you market exactly. you know products to women and not being like what kind of work do you do how do you overcome a lack of intuitiveness when you're doing your work 
uh, hire people who know and have that experience of your consumer. If you're marketing to women, here's the really bright idea, Todd, hire women marketeers. Shocking. Uh, so so <laughs> certainly, in, certainly and retail is detail. So it, it is very, certainly in personal care is very, very much uh, dominated by women in senior roles. Um, so, I mean, the founder uh, of, of Body Shop was, was, was a woman, and, and certainly the head of the Japanese franchisee was a lady. Uh, and, and so, a lot, lot of, as I recall, the, the people in the regional office were, was very much uh, women as well. So, you, you need to be in tune with the culture and the DNA as well. I mean, for myself, I, I wasn't there, you know, dictating marketing campaigns, how to market to a, to, to a female consumer. But my, my job is just to really just execute and, uh, and put the dots together. All right. Retail is detail. Yeah. I love that. Can you explain more about that quip? Uh, yeah, I, I think I, I'll put it this way. When you're doing wholesaling business and, and you're selling your, your goods, whether it's to Neiman Marcus or to Macy's or to Walmart, uh, you know, somebody related to that as uh, shooting a movie where you've got a schedule, you've got a timeline, you've got a script, but, you know, you can do takes. The lighting's not right. Cut, take two, cut, he flubbed the lines, cut, take two, take three. And you can do many, many uh, 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 edits uh, along the way in shooting a movie, equating that to wholesale. When you're redoing retail, it's like a stage play. It's a stage performance. It's live. The audience there is in front of you. If you flub your lines, you don't do a good performance, uh, they throw eggs and tomatoes at you. Not anymore, but you know the word gets out and nobody comes uh, anymore. So, so it's live. How are you presenting your products? How are you doing your customer service? So, it's, it's that attention to detail that's live with consumers when you open the door uh, that, that becomes very, very important. Let's move on now to your work with the Columbia uh, Sportswear. Um, was it about thirteen years there? Something yeah, like that. Yeah, correct. Yeah. Okay, so we have a lot to unpack there and a lot of insights to learn from all your time there. But just from a kind of a a high level, 30,000 foot macro type of level, maybe we can talk just a little bit about that space. Okay, outdoor apparel and equipment in APAC, not the first region that comes to mind when people think about outdoor or you know, uh, you know, even though Everest is located there, typify uh, the, the big outdoor sports enthusiasts from that region of the world. OK, things have changed. Can you talk a little bit about how outdoor apparel and equipment market has changed and evolved in APAC over the 13 years that you were at Columbia Sportswear? Yeah, in in the beginning, Todd, uh, when I started, uh, Colombia was in Japan, uh, was in Korea, was not in China. Uh, and, uh, and this was 2003, 2004. I, I know the, the uh, you know, the thinking China was early days at that time. Not, none of the big global outdoor brands were in China yet. Uh, it, it, the, the, the thought was you source your products from China yourself to these consumers. Uh, and then that not a lot of brands really thought that was an opportunity. You know, Nike and Adidas, the athletic brands had been in for, for quite some time uh, and really just uh, laying the foundations of their brands. Uh, so it was interesting. I, I, I went into uh, China, met with a bunch of retailers 
that were selling sporting goods. Uh, they were well aware of Colombia. I mean, these guys travel around the world and uh, they, they go to trade shows and they were well aware of Colombia and the other brands. Um, but, you know, the, the general consensus at the time was, well, nobody's skiing, nobody's snowboarding, nobody's camping, nobody's trail running. All these outdoor activities that were being done in other countries really what it just was not starting yet in China. And I thought, okay, well, fine. Uh, well, then let's start anyway. And we can start to build the market and do marketing and uh, basically promote the great outdoors in China. So, so we did start with a, with a, with a Swire Resources, a partner based in Hong Kong that had uh, significant experience with other brands in China. So uh, we started uh, uh, in department stores. We started shops uh, in the tier one cities, Beijing, Shanghai, uh, if you will. And then we started to sponsor outdoor uh, events, uh, outdoor trail running events, uh, what was like camping, uh, some of the few ski slopes that did exist up in northern China, uh, sponsoring uh, those ski slopes, just promoting the brands and activities. So it was like you, you, helping to build the market. And um, yeah, so you said you know, most brands wouldn't think about uh, Asia, but uh, I think for most brands, uh, certainly China, Japan, and Korea would certainly be in the top five, certainly in the top 10 uh, for any brands around the world. Uh, Korea, uh, oddly enough, uh, most people sort of oversee Korea, you know, 50 million people there squeezed between China and, uh, and Japan. I, I think at one point was the world's third largest outdoor apparel market after the United States and Germany. Uh, and he says, well, how could that be? Uh, it's just because the propensity of people to spend a lot of money on outdoor apparel uh, was very, very high. So yeah, so you, you need to uncover these nuggets around the world and spend time on the ground and uh, find out what's going on. So, Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I think about the function of the product, right? Let's just take a jacket, sure. yeah. right? It's keep you dry, keep you warm, right? That's it. People all over the world would like to stay dry and would like to stay warm, right? However, it's marketing that has been like, well, you know, trail running, climbing, uh, camping, yeah, outdoor activities, fishing, whatever. Uh, you know, this is this is where we're now blending, right? We're we're trying to infuse emotion and personal attachment and activity attachment uh, to you know driving sales that. I would assume has to be rebuilt when you go to places where everything that you've had at your disposal to try to draw on, on, on emotion and attachment and brand building doesn't exist. Yeah, that, that's a good point, uh, Todd, because uh, you're, you're you know, so keeping warm and dry outdoor, right? I mean, th th those those two apply, but it's how you market it to the consumer that becomes uh, a, a little bit different. Uh, you know, in, in China, it was very much about the technology. They wanted what was the latest and greatest and the newest. Uh, and uh, really, they had no issues of paying premium uh, prices uh, for that. Uh, there was just that hunger uh, for brands and for a message and a story. Not that that doesn't exist in other markets. It certainly does, of course. But the emphasis was significantly higher in how we marketed uh, the technologies that supported the brand uh, in, in China. Uh, but yeah, but I also go on to say that for, for Colombia, the, the challenge was also tackling size and fit, uh, because as an American company, let, let's say that the products were uh, more comfortable fits, uh, as you will. And so certainly, just like my Rockport analogy on the footwear, well, certainly then you need to adjust for size and fit of the Asian consumers uh, as well, as we did for Europe. 
also, because I think that that became the big challenge uh, for Europeans, especially for sportswear. You, you had to be much tighter uh, to the body as, as Europeans wear clothes a little bit differently than Americans do. Right. Okay. So, yes, they do. Let's talk a little bit about dissecting the geographies of APAC, right? Let, if if you could, you know, we, we just did it for saying, okay, well, here's Europeans and, 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 and looser fitting for Americans, something like that. But what about APAC? Can we do the same? Or, or, or you know, do the, is it all the same? And I know the answer to that, but I'm just putting it out there for emphasis. Japan, you know, greater China, um, other Southeast Asia, Indonesia, for instance. Yeah, what's really interesting, Todd, at Colombia, what we did was we started off small of localizing designs for Japan and Korea initially. Uh, so we would certainly use the same technologies uh, that, that Colombia had, but we would modify the product for size and fit, uh, but also in design and also quality of fabrics as well. Uh, when a design, I mean the consumer, unlike the United States, tended to be younger and more urban. So you needed to be much more stylish. You needed to be uh, more colorful uh, and just have a higher degree of design for a, a more of an urban consumer versus the Columbia consumer in the United States that tended to be more suburban, even slash rural. So size, fit, design, quality. Uh, so at, at, at one, one point, about maybe 70, 80 percent of the collection that was sold in Japan and Korea was designed in Tokyo and in Seoul. Uh, and, and so I think that was a, a major, major step for the brand's commitment of investment uh, to really make that leap. Yes, it's a global brand, but very much localized from the product standpoint. And I think that was greatly appreciated uh, by the consumers. You know, alternatively, and I'll be critical of the company here, it, it, the thinking was for Europe, well, we don't really need to modify the product at all. And we'll just, you know, what we sell in the United States, we'll sell in Europe. So I think to this very day, the, the Asia-Pac markets uh, is still probably uh, uh, has higher revenue than it does in Europe, quite frankly. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, the next question and the next talking point I wanted to get to was really talking about failures and leaning in maybe even just from your Columbia experience and then on, you know, your, your recent consulting, because like you said, localizing was great. Have product design teams for APAC based in APAC. That's that's a great thing that you can do. But, you know, what about some of the, the hard lessons learned, the failures you've seen, um, brands even that you were competing with? Can you talk some about like and I know you're really passionate about this. How are brands typically failing going to, to APAC? Yeah, I, I think they're just assuming just that itself, uh, Todd. It, it's Asia. Asia looks like this. Europe looks like that. Uh, you know, so, you know, what you do in Japan, what you do in China, well, why can't you do that in Thailand and Indonesia? It's all Asia after all. Uh, and I, I think that's, you know, so, so it's like, well, it's, it's like, what's Europe? Are, are we talking about a consumer in Stockholm or somebody in Rome? Asia, are we talking about a consumer that's in Tokyo or somebody who's in Bangkok? And so just to, I think, again, a, a bit uh, of naivete, just to make these round globes. Well, that's the Asia Pac region. That's the EMEA or the Europe region. Uh, I think it's, it's a bit naive. And, and, and you can't listen. Nobody wants to have multiple styles and SKUs. You know, if you can just sell one product around the world, it makes life incredibly easier and efficient. 
And I suppose if you're selling, you know, frozen peas or soybeans, you can do so. Not that I'm an expert in agriculture, but when you're selling apparel and footwear or personal care products, yeah, it, it's it cultures, uh, histories, uh, and, and consumers are very different around the world. And I think that when you ignore that or, or don't want to address that, uh, then that's when you run into problems. Okay, it gets me thinking about organizational structure. And I think this is this would be really interesting as far as even before brands, brand owners, brand decision makers that are out there listening, looking to go to anywhere in APAC. Um, uh, let me ask you, should they be looking inward? Should 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 part of the preparatory process of going to that region being uh, involved you know, looking in the mirror and understanding how their process up, like, because when they, you know, employ and engage someone like yourself, where do you need to be? Who do you need access to in order to be able to do your job properly to help them be successful and where your input goes in and where it affects and how close do you need to be able to inject your input and your consultation to the core areas that you need access to. Can you talk a little bit about organizational structure and the proper and the best kind of way to have an organizational structure to go there and to be working with people like yourselves? Yeah, good question, Todd. I, I think it, whether it's a small, medium, large-sized company, you know, it really needs the total commitment of the C-suite, of, of the senior leadership. If you just say, right, we, we've got this international division and we've got these guys and, and they're responsible for uh, the markets outside the United States and they're sort of segregated from the rest of the organization, uh, then they're not going to get support from operations, customer service, planning, uh, marketing, merchandising, uh, HR, finance. It, it really needs to be part and parcel of a global mindset. Otherwise, you're just exporting, Todd. You know, then then you're just thinking about oh, we're just going to export the widgets that we sell here in the United States, and you you can do that. That's fine, but I think that if you really want to have a global business and a global mindset in your organization, it can't be just those handful of people that are responsible primarily for the international markets, and the rest of us are sitting in the in you know in the in the C suite and the home market, and we've got this mentality of domestic sales versus the foreign markets. Um, so it, you really need to look at all of your markets around the world as just, it's, it's one market. It just, we've got consumers in Tokyo, we've got consumers in Paris, as we have in Vancouver, as we have in Chicago. And I think that those companies that understand that, uh, you know, end, end up being much more successful because they have a respect and an understanding that consumers around the world are different. And then how you market to them may need to be different as well. So if you're going to modify product and modify marketing and your messaging, that can't be just left up to a few people that are responsible in the international division. It's got to be throughout the organization. So we're talking about modifying marketing, talking about modifying messaging. But what else should we be talking about? I mean, should we be talking about uh sizing when it comes to production you know obviously we'll take oh the, you know the average foot is a size nine and then we'll you know that'll be 50 percent, and then we'll do 20 percent size 10 and 20 percent size eight and then you know packaging right you know uh, uh just colors and and things what other considerations 
Um, and the, you know, low hanging fruit to, you know, things, you know, fringe things that we should be thinking about. What should, uh, you know, brands be considering, you know, to, you know, as far as localizing for where they're going? Well, the, the whole go to market process, Todd, you, you know, so, so are you going to have, you're going to have online sales, you're going to have offline sales. Okay, great. So, so you're doing online sales. Do you, you have your own branded website? You're going to be servicing those consumers uh, locally through a warehouse uh, in Japan, or you can be shipping products from the United States. Are you going to be working with Amazon globally? Are you going to be working with Rakuten in Japan, you know, or, or others? And then your coupon in Korea, then the Alibaba's or the JD's in, in China. Uh, so, so what is your offer? your online strategy going to be uh, that's going to be in-house or through third party. Uh, And then, you know, for the offline business, are you wholesaling to department stores and retail chains and mom and pop? Do you have a retail strategy? Are you going to be operating those retail uh, points yourself? Or are you going to be uh, appointing uh, franchisees or retail partners uh, to reach your consumers? So I think those are some uh, real 30,000 feet level uh, questions you need to ask is what is that best strategy and, and where is your company you know, currently uh, sitting? Do you have the resources and the finance to, finances to do so? Uh, so certainly for a small or medium-sized company breaking out internationally, you know, the first thought isn't, oh, hey, let's open up subsidiary in Japan and uh, start hiring people and leasing an office. You know, you're usually finding a third-party partner, distributor, agent uh, that uh, you contract with, giving exclusive rights to. And, you know, they're well capitalized. They understand your brand. They understand your industry. And then they're able to, uh, you know, uh, uh, execute that go-to-market strategy, whether it's online or offline. What about a couple of other things on the wouldn't want to call it the negative side of of things, but the uh, the underbelly of of of, uh, of maybe e-commerce, which is complaints and returns. How do you prepare and organize for that as well when you are just seemingly going so far away? Uh, yeah, two words. Good luck. Uh, it, it's just, it's just, it's just, yeah. So, so the more local you can be for those returns. I mean, the consumer doesn't want to ship the product back to the United States if they're sitting in Tokyo or Shanghai or or Seoul. I mean, okay, they're going to do it once. They're going to be twice, and and then you're done. Uh, so, so many companies have you know localized with a, a 3PLs, or you're working with the coupons, Alibaba's, and 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 the Rakutens, and so so you you have your inventory that's local, so you can deliver quicker. I mean, nobody's going to wait. Nobody's going to buy online in Tokyo and say, oh, our delivery is going to be in 10 days. It's just not going to happen. So if you want to beat your competition, you need to go to where the markets are. So you better have your inventory nearby to where the consumers are. And then, you know, I call that fish where the fish are. You know, if that's where your fish are, then you got to be close to it. And then you got to handle the returns there as well. Yeah, I, I, I mean, has has that ever seeped into the marketing or messaging in any way, shape, or form? Because I know that if I'm looking at something, let's say I'm using AliExpress, right, and I know where it's coming from, and I know it's going to take a while to get to me, and I have a lower level of trust, mm-hmm. and I have a higher level of resistance to purchase because. If I don't like it, I'm I'm pretty sure I'm just stuck with it. There's no way I'm going to return and get a refund, right? Now, do you need to do? Do you think it's worthwhile for brands to think about, you know, assuaging the concerns of the customers in those areas, or do we just kind of like push it off to the side and not worry about it? Yeah, it, it's sort of like this, Todd. Oh, hey, I, I'm on. Uh 
I'm on Tmall, uh, the global marketplace. And so great. Now I've got 1.3 odd billion eyeballs looking at my product on Tmall, uh, but my inventory is sitting in Chicago. You sort of like halfway. So so good luck with that. You're, unless you're selling something that's so unique and people must have it, gotta have it. Um, you know, it's likely that your competition, your competition here in the United States or competition from wherever, has beaten you to the punch and set up inventory in or much closer uh, to those consumers. Okay, we're going to end part one with Bill Tung localizing for consumers in Japan right there. Join us next week for part two. Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking at the Asia Pacific region for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands, just like yours, enter China, Japan, and Southeast Asia. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Negotiation, and if you're interested in being a guest or want to connect with me or any of our team, please reach out to us at podcast at WPIC.co, and be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 